Aren't you glad you came to church today? I'm glad you came to church today. I really am. We have a source of unshakable hope in the midst of a very shakable world where things happen on a regular basis that can catch us off guard, can, can rock us to our core, and we can be incredibly thankful that we worship an unshakable God, that we can lift our eyes to the mountains and find help from Him. And we're in a series right now titled Unshakable. We've been talking about some of the characteristics of God, some, some elements of His character, His nature, which is an unshakable God. He doesn't get caught off guard. He's never reeling. He's never taken aback. He never says, whoa, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> I don't know how many times you've said that in the last couple of years. I know I've said it more than once. And yet, we can be thankful that God is never caught off guard. And we've been looking at five elements of his nature in this series. We're in week three right now. We started with his unshakable word, that it truly is foundational. It doesn't change. It changes us. It has the ability to transform us. And that's been my hope and my prayer for this series is that it would be foundational and transformational, that it would give us a solid foundation upon which to live our lives, to build our lives, that there would be people who would step into the kingdom of God, into his unshakable kingdom, which we'll be talking about next week, and that it would provide a solid foundation, but also that it would bring transformation. Maybe even for those who are believers, have been believers for some time, but if you find yourself shaken, if you find yourself sort of rocked by the events of the world and, and reeling from time to time that this would help us become God's unshakable people. And that will be the last week of this series. But we started with his unshakable word and how it transforms us. It doesn't just inform us, it also transforms us when we allow it to. Last week we looked at his unshakable grace. That God's grace is a solid foundation. It's the only solid ground For our salvation, it's the only solid ground for us to build our lives upon. That his unshakable grace and the gospel of God's grace is such an incredible gift to us. And so with those two sort of laying a foundation, we'll build upon that this week and in the weeks that follow in this series. And today we're talking about cultivating an unshakable hope. An unshakable hope in God in who he is, in what has been done for us through the gospel of his grace. And I don't know about you, but I know for me personally, there have been times in my life when I have discounted the value of hope. I've discounted the the incredible asset that hope is in the life of a believer. And I used to do this a lot, and I I can see a number of different reasons, and we might get into a few of those today, that I sort of discounted the role that hope plays in my life and in the lives of believers. Sometimes we're somewhat ambivalent to it until it's needed, and then we're rooting around trying to find it. Or maybe we just forget about it sometimes. Have you ever forgotten about hope, forgotten about what's been done for us and what's available to us as believers? Do we forget about that? Do we forget about the hope that we have in Christ through the gospel of God's grace? And so that's why we're talking about this today. 
And I heard a line in an interview recently that really stuck with me. It was uh, John Acuff, who's a writer that I really enjoy. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got really good content. He wrote a book called Soundtracks about changing some of the mental loops. And so if you have sort of what we might call a harsh inner critic, Soundtracks might be a good book for you to, to read or to listen to. It's not overtly Christian, but... I saw all kinds of applications for putting God's word into our minds, into our hearts, and allowing that to be the loops that we play over and over instead of some of the voices maybe from childhood or from trauma that we experience. And so it's a really good, really good book. And there was a line as he was being interviewed about that book that really stuck with me. He said, fear is free. Hope takes work. Fear comes free. We live in a world where there are thousands of reasons to be afraid. All you got to do is open up your phone in the morning and it will give you plenty of reasons to be afraid through social media, through news media, through maybe text messages that have come in about this is going on or that is going on. We live in a world that gives us thousands and thousands of reasons to be afraid. And yet hope takes work. And that's why hope matters so much. Because while we're bombarded with reasons to be afraid, biblical hope comes in and says, if you will cultivate hope, if you will create an environment, that's what cultivation means, to create an environment where hope can flourish, if you will do that, it will be a tremendous resource for you. It will be an unshakable resource for you. And without hope, we become hopeless. And we open the door to despair. And we open the door to misery in all kinds of forms. Because rather than being hopeful, filled with hope, full of hope, if we're not careful, we can quickly become hopeless. And in order to stay full of hope, because we live in a world that drains the hope from us, we have to constantly be putting more hope in. Fortunately, we have a source of unshakable hope, and it is limitless. It doesn't run out on us. It is always available to us. And so I would venture a guess that most of us spend most of our time somewhere in between misery and despair and absolute hopelessness and on the other end of the continuum being truly hopeful with biblical hope, full to the brim, so that when people bump us, that's what sloshes out is hope. They don't get get what they sometimes get when they bump into us. They don't get nastiness or or anger or frustration because we're so full of hope that when they bump into us that's what spills out and so that's sort of the image that we're going to play with that we're on a continuum and there are things that we can do in scripture that help move us along that continuum so we spend more time on the hopeful side of the continuum as we cultivate hope in our lives as we create an environment where hope can flourish We have farmers in our congregation and in our community and surrounding us all around. And what a good farmer does is create an environment where corn or soybeans or hay can flourish. Not just kind of make it, but produce an abundant crop. And we can create an environment in our own lives where hope can flourish even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So that's going to be our topic this morning. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This will be our passage today, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And last week I had a lot of different scriptures, and we looked at the gospel of God's grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament in sort of a progression. This week we're going to stay right here. So you can just open up to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and hang out there. 
And if you're in our sanctuary and you want to grab one of the Bibles, it's page 1700, I'm sorry, 1873 in, in the Pew Bibles, but we'll also have it on the screen uh, if you're having a hard time finding it. I want to give you just a little bit of context to the letter of Hebrews because it's unique in many ways against or, or alongside some of the other letters in the New Testament. They're, in the New Testament, it's sort of broken down. You have the four Gospels. You have the book of Acts. Those are sort of Christian history and narrative form about the life and ministry of Jesus in the early church in Acts. And then you have a series of letters that were written. And it starts with the letters of Paul. And so these are churches that the Apostle Paul wrote to, or I'm sorry, letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches. And so there's a bunch of those, and there's a few of those that he wrote to individuals. And then there are some other letters in the New Testament that were written by other authors, and we know who they are and we know who they were writing to. Hebrews is somewhat unique in that we're not quite sure who the author is and we're not quite sure who the audience is in that it is not specifically stated at the beginning of the letter like many of the other letters are. And so some scholars have said, you know, maybe it was Timothy or maybe it was Titus or maybe it was Silas that wrote this letter. Maybe it was Paul and he just changed up his style quite a bit and just chose not to identify himself. We're not 100% sure who wrote it, but we do know from the context of the letter that it seems to be written predominantly to people who were of Jewish background. It, it quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture. It connects things and makes these comparisons between the Old Testament way and how Jesus is better than the Old Testament way, how Jesus presents a better covenant and a better hope, and how Jesus is a better high priest. In fact, I preached a whole sermon series on this a couple of years ago called Better Than Ever. And how Jesus came and brought something better than ever. The new covenant was better than. It wasn't like version 1.2. It's version 2.0. It is like totally new, totally better than anything. And, and so each of these comparisons in Hebrews is followed by a challenge or a warning to not fall away. And this section that we're going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter 10 includes a call to faith and endurance. Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for us, we must be all the more eager to be faithful and to stay faithful. Because Jesus is better than other, better than ever, we must stay faithful and stay faithful to him. So we'll be looking at verses 19 through 25. I want to read verses 19 through 22 and kind of look at them as they set a a stage, and then we'll take it one verse at a time after that. Verse 19, uh, reading from verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Did you get all that? I don't know about your translation. In my translation, verses 19 through 22 are a single 63-word sentence. And as a recovering English major, I'm very impressed because I think it works. And I was reminded of diagramming sentences. Do you remember when you got to do that in eighth grade? Anybody? And there were the eight parts of speech and you diagram sentences. Anybody want to come up here? We'll pull up a whiteboard. You can diagram this 63-word sentence and you can underline the subject and you can to underline the verb and you can do all of that and all the subordinate clauses and everything else that's going on here. There's a lot going on here. 
But I don't want you to miss the first word. It happens to be one of my favorite words in all of the Bible, in all of Scripture. It's the word therefore. And so before we move on, we need to look and see what's the therefore pointing back to. And the therefore is pointing back to this exposition in the first 18 verses about Jesus and his sacrifice once for all. That Jesus sacrificed his life for the sins of the world, that he was the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, that he sacrificed once for all. And so where the old Hebrew system, the Old Testament system, called for sacrifices over and over and over again on a weekly basis, on an annual basis, there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus comes and brings one sacrifice for all people in all times. And personally, I'm really glad he did. I'd much rather have a baptistry over here than an altar, and we don't have to bring animals in, and just think what it would do to the carpet, right? So like from a practical standpoint, I'm thankful for that. But on a much larger scale, I'm so thankful for that. And so he's reminding us, pointing back to the gospel, that Christ sacrificed once for all, and because of the gospel of God's grace. And these verses that we've just read are really a summary of the whole gospel. Look at it. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, right? The most holy place was off limits to everybody but the high priest before Jesus. And now, through the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Nothing is off limits. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, it says earlier in Hebrews. In verse 20, it says there is a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And so there used to be a curtain that kept people from getting into the most holy place. And now through the body and the blood of Jesus, and we just took communion this morning, we have access to God, unrestricted access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a restatement of the gospel, and it continues. And since we have a great priest, that's Jesus, over the whole house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's the first thing that we are called to do. Therefore, because of all that and because of all this, we draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. And there are four exhortations in this passage that we're going to look at, and this is the first, that we would draw near to God. If we're going to cultivate an unshakable hope, we need to draw near to God. And there are certain ways in which we draw near to God that we see in the rest of verse 22. So the first thing we do is we draw near to God, and the first way in which we draw near to God is with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. A sincere heart is a heart that is after God and God alone, that we draw near to him, for him, not for something else. You see, there's no maneuvering, there's no manipulation that's involved. Those would not be elements of a sincere heart. A sincere heart draws near to God for God, for more of God. We don't come to God and draw near to God in order to get more of something else, because in reality, that is our God. If we're coming to God and our arrangement with God is, is God, I will worship you and I will serve you and I will serve your church and I will tithe as long as there's plenty of money in the bank account, as long as I advance in my career, as long as me and my family stay healthy, then those as long as's, those are our real God. And we're using God to get those and that's religion and that's not the gospel. The gospel says we come to God because of what has been done for us. And we draw near to God with a sincere heart. 
to get more of him in our lives, not more of his blessings. So that's first. We have to come with a sincere heart, and that in and of itself will cultivate an unshakable hope. Next, we draw near to God with full assurance of faith. The full assurance of faith. And our faith is in him. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our faith. As a pastor, oftentimes I'm counseling with somebody and they're like, I thought I had enough faith to keep this from happening. And I recognize the faith was in faith, not in God. And so we're called to to have the full assurance of faith and our faith is in him. Our faith is in God. Not in ourselves, not in our ability to have enough faith to keep the things that we don't want to happen from happening or to make the things that we do want to happen. We have enough faith in God to say, even if that doesn't happen, even if that does happen, I'm with you 100%. I surrender completely because of the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we don't intercede for people. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for people. It means that we accept God's will and we surrender to it whatever it may be with the full assurance of faith because faith, we're going to be told in just a few verses, faith is being sure of what we hope for in Hebrews 11.1 and certain of what we do not see. So we draw near with a sincere heart. We draw near with the full assurance of faith. We draw near with a heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture that points us back to the Old Testament. It points us back to Exodus 24 when the covenant was being made between God and the people of God and the priests sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices on the people. This is another thing I'm kind of glad we don't do anymore. (laughs) I don't like blood very much. I, I, I don't think I would be fit for this office necessarily. I'm a bit squeamish when it comes to that. But it's a beautiful picture of, 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 of what was taking place and the covenant that was being made had to, had to have blood to be in full effect. And so it's basically pointing to a substitute once again that this animal has paid the price in the Old Testament covenant, in the Old Covenant, for you. And so your hearts are sprinkled, your bodies, your lives are sprinkled in the Old Testament. Now in Christ, one sacrifice for all, we have our hearts sprinkled figuratively with the blood of Christ. There's an inward transformation that takes place when we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We experience that inward sprinkling. And again, this points us to communion that we have just taken, these symbolic elements. I loved how Pastor Keith said, these simple elements become sacred through communion. And our simple lives can be sprinkled with the blood of Christ and our hearts can be transformed. So there's an inner transformation. And then the last statement there in verse 22 talks about an outward proclamation through baptism. So not only are our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, but our bodies are washed with pure water. This is talking about, a, about baptism. Baptism is an outward proclamation. It's a, it's a public profession of what has taken place inwardly. It's the outward breaking, I'm sorry, the inward breaking into the outward. And so that's what baptism is all about. That's why it's so significant. That's why it matters. And I believe as it relates to our subject today that that baptism, that public profession of our faith helps cultivate unshakable hope in our lives because committing to and going on record among your peers, among your family, your church family, cultivates hope. 
I know it has in my life. I know there were times when the enemy tried to whisper in my ear and say, you're not really saved. You haven't, you haven't been living right. You haven't been doing right. You haven't been all of these things. And I'm so glad I can point back to August 3rd, 2004 and say, no, I made a public profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. It was real. It was authentic. And I know that there are many people who, who don't have that memory and so that's why we're going to offer baptisms next week. And if next week doesn't work for you, talk to us. We'll, we'll figure out a time that does work for you. But this is significant. This is meaningful because going on record and making a public profession of our faith, it opens us up to the family of believers. And it cultivates hope in a very powerful way. And so in this verse, in verse 22, following this first exhortation to draw near to God and to do it in the specific ways that we have talked about as we see in this verse, we see sort of a merging of the personal and the public, of the inward and the outward, and they're all coming together as we draw near to God. We do this individually in our relationship with God. We also do this corporately together in the body of believers, and we make a public profession of faith in Christ. And then we see our second exhortation. That second exhortation, which is maybe the main exhortation for us today, is to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. So verse 23 gives us our second exhortation, the second thing that we do. First, we draw near to God. We do it with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ and baptized with living water. Then... We hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So once we get a hold of it, we don't let it go. We hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And and here's a good point to make sure that we understand what hope really is. And I think one of the reasons that sometimes we discount hope is because we think it's a synonym for a dream or for wishful thinking. Or for just, you know, because we say, well, I sure hope so-and-so wins the World Series or the Super Bowl. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not biblical hope. That's not what we're talking about here. That's a wish. You can't hold unswervingly to a wish, but you can hold unswervingly to the hope we profess in the grace and love of God. Hope is a confident expectation of what is certain. We know it's going to happen and we're waiting expectantly for it to happen. Not hoping that it happens, wishing that it happens. We're confident that it's going to happen and we're waiting expectantly for it. And this is a tremendous, tremendous benefit for those of us who have lost a loved one that was in the family of God. That hope carries us through a season of grieving. That hope can carry us through a season of doubt or uncertainty in our own lives because there's one thing that we can be absolutely certain of. We hold to that hope unswervingly. It's not kind of up and down, here and there, back and forth, on again, off again. We hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. We don't set it down. An analogy came to mind. I've got a picture of a corner of my garage. Maybe your garage has a corner like this. couple of shelves, workbench, 95-98% of the tools I own are in that corner. (laughs) But I'm not always sure where it is when I need it. Guys, you ever do this? You're in the middle of a project and you need a certain tool and you're pretty sure you've got it. I know I've seen it before and I don't think I borrowed it. And so you go and you root around and you look in here and you look in there and you go and you say, babe, have you seen this? And 
Well, yeah, I think it's out there. I think I saw it. Did you look here? Yeah, I looked there. And you go and you look, and maybe you find it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you go buy another one. (laughs) And ladies, I know some of you are smirking like you have no idea what we're talking about, but I've seen some of your purses. I've seen some of your handbags. There is all manner of things in there, and you can't lay hands on those things quickly either. So I think we're even. But don't treat hope like this. Don't throw it on the shelf or put it in a bin until you need it. And then you got to go and root around for it and try to find it. For me, I think hope should be more like one of those backpacks that you can cinch across the front and you can put a, it goes with you wherever you go. It goes up and down. Whenever I've been on a mission trip, your backpack is critically important because it carries all kinds of stuff for you. And I got, got these backpacks and you cinch everything down so that it goes when you go. And if somebody's messing with that backpack, they're messing with you and you know where it is. And I think that's more how we need to treat hope. We hold unswervingly to that hope. We don't set it down and lose track of it. It's always in our hand because he who promised is faithful. You see, the object of our hope is unchanging and unshakable and therefore Our hope is unshakable if we are rooted in it, if we we are holding unswervingly to it, if we have cultivated it and we are continually cultivating that hope and we don't set it down, we hold on to it. It will carry us through the difficult seasons. It will carry us through grief. It will carry us through loss. It will carry us through uncertainty in a way that our thoughts and our feelings won't. You see, when we're going through a season of uncertainty, sometimes thoughts get confused for facts or feelings get confused for facts but when we know that we know that we know and we can point to a time when our hearts were sprinkled and we can point to a time when we went on record and made a public profession of our faith that will carry us through difficult seasons in our lives in a way that our thoughts and our feelings may not so we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess and that carries us through the uncertainty and the trials and the storms of life. That's the second exhortation. First, we draw near to God. Second, we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And third, we consider in verse 24 how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is where it goes from private to public. Private. We draw near to God individually and corporately. Yes, we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess and We consider, that word consider means to reflect upon or to think about or to discern through prayer how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And that word spur on literally means to provoke. How many of you like to get provoked? (laughs) Provoked usually has a negative connotation, doesn't it? We live in a world that is always provoking us to anger and to jealousy and to all kinds of bad things. But here the author, the writer of of Hebrews, is saying that we need to be thinking about and praying about how we can spur one another on, how we can provoke each other or stir each other up toward love and good deeds. That's what should be unique and should be different about the family of God, about the body of Christ, is that when we come in here, when we come through those doors, when we come together, that we're among people who are spurring us on toward love and good deeds so that we can carry that out into a world that's always trying to stir us up and provoke us it seems towards hatred and bad deeds and this and the next point are really making it clear that we need each other we're not meant to go it alone we're not meant 
to walk this road on our own. We need each other. One of my favorite songs, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a gospel-sounding song called I Need You to Survive. It's by Hezekiah Walker. We've never sang it here. It doesn't really, doesn't really fit here. It kind of needs a choir. It kind of needs a number of things. And we've tried to say, could we do that song? Could we do it well? The chorus of that song says, I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. And it's a beautiful song. And it just builds and builds and builds with all these key changes. And you should Google it or you should look it up on YouTube and you should listen to it. And you should worship and you should think about people that you need in order to survive. And people that need you in order to survive. And you should pray for them. And you should call them and ask them to pray for you. Because this third exhortation to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And the next one that follows in verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I think this verse is timely. I think this verse is important today. Even as I look out with a fuller sanctuary than we normally have had. Many are in the habit of sort of not prioritizing church attendance. And as wonderful as it is to be able to connect with people online, especially people that are unable to be here, it's brought you into the family and it's brought you into the experience that we're having together. I'm afraid it's also a bit of a threat because it has made it easier for people to not come to church. There is value in getting up if you're able and coming to church. And I'm preaching to the choir right now. (laughs) But I'm also aware that That on any given Sunday, 20 to 30% of a congregation are not in the congregation. They're somewhere else doing something else. And many of those are good things. But it's really important that church not become something. Coming together, gathering together, not become optional. Not become something we do if we don't have anything else to do. But that it's foundational. That it's how we cultivate hope. We cultivate hope when we come together and when we sing together and when we encourage one another and we consider how we can spur one another on to good deeds. And so these two points really go together. And there's something that we need to do on a regular basis. We need to encourage one another regularly. We need to be encouraged regularly. And to encourage means to come alongside with courage, to come alongside with strength. Almost as if you say, it looks like your courage bucket is a little bit low. Can I come alongside you and give you some of mine? That's what it means to encourage one another, to speak life into one another, to say, I know it's hard, but he is faithful. I know it's difficult right now, but he is faithful. And we'll get through it, and we'll get through it together. We need each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to see each other and be seen by each other. These are all very, very important things. And so you might be at this point saying, man, there were four things that we're supposed to do and the first one had four things. Pastor Mark, that sounds like a lot of work. Last week you talked about grace. Now you're talking about work. Well, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. These things will not earn you unshakable hope, but they will create an environment in your life where unshakable hope can flourish. And so, yeah, sometimes it takes work. Fear comes free. Hope takes work. But here's our bottom line. Cultivating unshakable hope is always worth the effort. Cultivating unshakable hope now, before it's hard, 
will make it easier to get through the storm of life because you're surrounded by people, because you're regularly in fellowship with one another, because you're regularly coming back to God and growing in your relationship with Him. Cultivating unshakable hope can be effort-intensive, but it's always worth the effort. It's not always easy. Sometimes you have to go through difficult things, and that's what cultivates more hope in your life. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it to create an environment in your life where hope can flourish in you. And this has told us how to do that. Daily time in his word and prayer helps cultivate hope. Meeting regularly with other believers and sharing what is going on in your life and praying for each other. These are things that cultivate an unshakable hope in us so that when the storms of life come, they don't shake us. Because we're on solid ground and we have people to link arms with. And so yes, we draw near to God with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ and bodies cleansed in baptism. We hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. We consider how we may spur one another on. And we don't ever, ever give up meeting together. These are all things that we can do because of the hope that we have. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of hope. Thank you for the practical exhortations of things that we can do to help cultivate an unshakable hope. Lord, we believe that you desire that for us. That's why you gave us these good gifts. That's why you're a God of grace and love and mercy. And so we pray that you would help us to draw near to you with a sincere heart. That you would help us to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. That you would help us to consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And you could help us to make the regular encouraging and meeting together a priority in our own lives. Even more so than it currently is. In all this we ask for your grace. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.